0: we all kind of live with this feeling that there's a a certain acceptable level of pain that goes with playing the trumpet. Um, But what I've learned over the years is actually that acceptable level is zero. If we're hurting ourselves and we're really like damaging ourselves to the point where it hurts when we cut something or we really feel bruised or battered or whatever that is, we're not doing it quite right.
1: This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru's Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Brian Davis. Brian is paying it forward. Originally from the UK, Brian relocated to the US and quickly established himself as a fixture in the New York City music scene. But things haven't always come easy for Brian, and chop problems forced him to seek out the help he needed to become a more efficient player. He's now committed to providing practical advice to trumpet players around the globe through his Airflow music books and videos. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang. And I am joined by Mr. Brian Davis. Brian, how are you today, sir?
0: Very well, thanks, Jose. Great to be here.
1: Hey, man, it is an absolute pleasure to to get to to meet you. I have I've heard you playing, certainly have done it, and I've seen uh, a number of your uh, videos on the uh, on the Airflow uh, YouTube channel. And uh, definitely want to talk about some of that stuff because uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by by all discussions, uh, uh, practice, and pedagogy. So uh, mm-hmm. let's we're gonna dive into that. I'm sure. But um, yeah, I, as we were talking in, in the the pre hang, the pre hang hang, uh, I I don't know why I just thought you were still over in England. You've been, but you've been over here in the United States for a while. So. Uh, what created that transition for you from, from being, uh, being in the UK to, to coming over here to New York?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, that, that was a long time coming. Um, I moved here in 2009. So I've been here for a little over 12 years now and it's actually, I mean, it's the same old story. Why does a musician move anywhere? It's for their partner so i you know my, my wife is from here and she likes it when i live in the same place as her so that's basically the story <laughs>
1: yeah yeah I, I hear you on that so uh, so um
0: yeah. yeah so i mean i was prior to that i was i was a road guy for a lot of years so i i was in england i never lived apart from very briefly in london um i always lived in leeds which is where i went to school years ago and so from there i ended up on tour a lot and i was a i was a tour guy for oh better part of 15 16 years something like that and in the last 10 years of that i was predominantly doing musicals and european tours and a little us touring and just getting around all over the place really and it was on one of those early tours in 99 that i met my wife and so we long distanced it because i was on the road all the time we did that for about 10 years and then i moved here so that, was that basically
1: uh, yeah so uh being yeah you know, it, it's funny to to uh to talk about uh like the different paths that people take like career-wise and you know you have a lot of people that are uh just they they go from uh to from college from, from university into uh, a teaching gig uh, maybe some performances uh here and there um and then you have the other people that tend to go on the road gigs, you know, and, and just just get their, get their education out on the road. Um, so what what is your take on? I mean, like, I know for yourself that you said you, you, you spent a lot of time on the road. Um, what are some like the big lessons that you that you took away from that? And, uh, you know, how, how does that shape your approach to uh, playing education and, and the like?
0: yeah it's interesting i mean i i I followed the kind of traditional path and went to music college and was super into doing that but i realized fairly soon that if i wasn't playing it wasn't any use like it's interesting i come from a family of teachers my parents were both teachers at one stage my siblings are both teachers uh, in high schools and what have you and so that's very much in our family. But that was never something I particularly wanted to do because my own experience as a music student in college was that the the syllabus didn't actually apply to me. And so I took what I was able to take from that experience, but I knew that I needed to get out there and work as much as possible to figure out what this was really all about. And so the thing that became available to me was uh lots of traveling around and playing with people so that's what i did basically and i was fortunate to get into really nice situations um you know in the late 90s in england there was a there was a huge boom in um latin music in salsa and things like that there was a huge upswing of people wanting to learn to dance it and all that kind of stuff so it became a scene for about five or six years and it still continues to an extent where there was just a lot of clubs And a lot of great bands playing that music. And also, you know, in England, we had a lot of the folks who were escaping Cuba, but didn't want to go to the route of completely um, defecting. So they didn't want to go to the States. So we had a lot of Cuban folks. And it's interesting when I play Latin music here, I run into a lot of folks from Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic or places like that, more so than Cuban folks. But in England there was a whole lot of Cuban folks that I got to play with. So I gotta learn I, I had the chance to learn the music from that standpoint, which was really interesting. And was something that, you know, when I when I was first playing with Arturo Farrell here in New York, we played the Sunday night gig at Birdland one week and I I was subbing in and he said, How is it that you sound like a fifty year old Cuban guy? Like, what's that? Random English bloke who's just shown up on my gig. So um, you know, It was, it was that kind of thing. And so that was what my early experiences and then through different things. I, you know, friends and colleagues, I found my way into the musical scene and that was a little steadier. And so that's what I did for a long time. But, you know, I think if you're going to be a musician, you've got to play a lot and you've got to figure it out from that standpoint. And, you know, I came around to teaching later. And it's something that I love to do, but it's it requires that time spent learning actually what it was really all about.
1: Yeah, so it's like you know, your 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 laboratory is is the stage, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I I find that kind of fascinating because um I'm, again I'm and by no means am I saying that that people go that go the traditional route of you know getting their their doctorates and and, and things like that uh, aren't great players, but and this goes beyond music. It's really interesting how many people are in higher education that really don't, you know, they, they've learned things from a theoretical perspective. They mm-hmm. aren't like real world skilled people. I mean, you see this in music. You see this in things like economics. You see it in, uh, you know, uh, in engineering or things like that. You know, these aren't people that have, you know, these these are people that have gone through the processes and they, be, they become basically... Uh, professional students as opposed Mm -hmm. to people that have gone out and and learned on the grind
0: sure and i mean i think that's in many ways now it seems that the you know music education is the business of music education rather than necessarily having anything to do with music in that sense if you know if that makes sense at all Um, yeah. you know and so people learning to play from a certain standpoint, but I mean, I'm in New York. And so, you know, people move here all the time and they show up on gigs and things like that. And you get to see the people who've played before and the people who haven't out on the bandstand. And it's a very different experience. And it's very telling sometimes. Sometimes people show up and they sound killing straight away. And sometimes they sound good, but they don't know what they're supposed to be playing contextually. And I think it's the context that you get from the fact of doing it and the fact of actually performing as opposed to just showing up and playing your notes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like the difference yeah. between uh, the, the mindset that you have to have on the bandstand and the mindset you have in the, that you can have when you're, you're in the studio. Mm hmm. There, there are two different things. Uh, you know, you're, granted, you have to be on on both of them, but For uh, sure,
0: sure, undoubtedly, you got, I mean, you've got to be able to show up and play, or you're not going to ask, get asked back. Yeah. Um, but there's, you know, there's a certain amount to, to be said above and beyond simply just being able to play well for being able to perform well and make it seem worthwhile on the gig for the audience because that's who we're playing for.
1: Ain't that the truth?
0: <laughs> so, you know, we've got to kind of show up and represent for them as much as anybody else.
1: Right, right. And it's also the, you know, it's the interpersonal stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and-
0: Absolutely, I mean, it's, yeah, you, I mean, you get asked back, you've got to play well, or you've got to play well enough, but, um, you know, also you've got to be nice to be around or people don't want to see you again, you know, it's the number one rule of life, you know, for want of a politer expression, don't be a dick. It's the number one law.
1: (laughs) And and unfortunately too many people break that law.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and some people, you know, are more aware of that fact than others. Yeah. We've all done it at one time or another. I'm guilt, as guilty of it as anybody, but I, you know, I try to do better than that and, you know, make it a pleasant situation as much as you know a good musical situation Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah the the um the grind of live playing and and i guess this is going to be a a good transition into you know it's kind of weaving in the the current situation as it is in in the world of of professional musicians um you know there's a certain there's a certain level of uh benefit to being on that that regular performance schedule um Mm -hmm. you know your your i mean your chops get stronger you you know your endurance gets better you're you're you know getting stronger to a point but then there's Mm -hmm. also that uh you know if you're overplaying or you're you know you've been in some some bad rooms and you ended up blowing your chops out that you have to figure out how to maintain yourself and be able to make that next show uh even though you're blown out uh and those are the things that, that you only learn through the experience of being out there so uh, are what are some of the things that you know, if you had to look back on your career uh, some of the lessons that you've learned on the stage uh, as a performer all these years um, you know that that you've learned about how to try and kind of keep your chops in shape and uh, not allow yourself to to get blown out or if you do what are some of the things that you do to kind of you know get yourself rehabbed back and and so you don't have to you don't have to miss a beat, literally.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing to ask me in particular because I, you know, 15 years ago now, 16 years ago now, I got to the point where I busted my face up playing the hard way so badly that I was at the point of probably needing to quit playing. Wow. And at the time I was doing... Uh, show i did for several years which was uh it was called variously the rat pack live from las vegas or the rat pack live at the sands when we did it over here in the states and i i joined i signed on to that show in 2004 for a four-month run and in april may of 2004 for a four-month run and i finished doing it five and a half years later You know, it was super fun to play and I loved that show and had the greatest time. We traveled all over the place. But um, when I started out, I was the second trumpet player. And after a couple of years, um, got elevated to being the lead player. And that went pretty good for a few months. And then we started doing the US tour and all of a sudden, they were just bringing me in the rhythm section and doing local hires and we didn't have our band around us. Um, and yeah, uh, all of a sudden I realized I didn't really have what it took to play that whole lead book eight times a week and make it sound convincing. So I got in trouble pretty quickly there and it was, um, yeah. The third weekend we were in, um, West Palm Beach, Florida, I'll never forget. And it was the, uh, probably the second show of the week, third show of the week. And I, I had a rough time in the, earlier in the summer, I should give the full context to the story. Uh, we'd been playing in England and we were playing close to where I lived at the time in Leeds. And so I was commuting every day. I was driving over to Manchester, it was a 45 minute to an hour drive. So I was staying at home for the first time in a long time. And we're playing our eight shows over there. And then we were playing somewhere else nearby the following week. So I was, I was home basically for the better part of a month. And because I showed back up, everyone's like, oh, great. Brian's back. We can do all those projects we've been putting off because he's been gone for so long. And so I was playing eight shows a week and just absolutely chock-a-block playing things in the day, on the off day, driving every day. So little sleep. Too much playing, and I was already busting myself open to play what I was playing. And so I cut my lips up so badly during the first week of this kind of three week period of hyper busyness that it was just wide open. I had a big open kind of wheel on my lip. There's no doubt where the mouthpiece sat because that was what it was. It got to the point where it wouldn't bleed anymore. Uh, It was, you know, it was just a big open thing. And I had no means to sub it out. And so I kept plowing on through and I got everything done. And then got to the end of that and had a few weeks off. We had a break and I came on vacation and I took two or three weeks off the horn and let everything heal up and then kind of eased myself back in for a week and got going again and showed up on the road. And that's when we started this US tour. And we're running backwards and forwards. We're doing two weeks in the States, two weeks in Europe, going backwards and forwards and I'm doing all of this stuff, all of this traveling. And we showed up, it was the second trip out. We were in West Palm beach, Florida. It's the second night of the week. And halfway through the first set, second set, halfway through one of the sets, my lip went ping and opened back up to how it had been a few months before in the summer, in one fell swoop. And when I say it went ping, it made an audible noise over the sound of a shout chorus. Uh. The second trumpet player went, what was that noise and looked at what happened to you because i had blood flowing down my shirt <laughs> it, was, it was not pretty that was not pretty and i was you know i kind of gently got my way through the rest of that week and then the following week and managed to kind of mitigate some stuff and really go easy but i was you know i was at the point where i realized you know that's that's not going to work. I'm evidently not doing something quite right here because you're not supposed to hurt yourself that bad. You know, we all, we all kind of live with this feeling that there's a a certain acceptable level of pain that goes with playing the trumpet. Um, but what I've learned over the years is actually that acceptable level is zero. If we're hurting ourselves and we're really like damaging ourselves to the point where it hurts when we cut something or we, really feel bruised or battered or whatever that is, we're not doing it quite right. And so that's what we need to actually mitigate and figure out and deal with. Now, I was very fortunate. I managed to get a hold of Roger Ingram. We were coming up to New York for a break week. He was still in the city at that time. He moved to Chicago five or six years later. Um, But he was still in New York at that time and through one of the guys on the gig one week, actually, I managed to get a hold of his phone number, called him up and went and took a lesson. It was a uh, day before Thanksgiving in 2006 and sat with him for two hours and he showed him what I was dealing with. And, you know, he said, oh yeah, yeah no, I, I see what's up. Gave me a, you know, told me exactly what I needed to do. It was completely contrary to everything I'd always been told. Um but I needed to hear it and I knew that I needed to hear it because I was in such bad shape. And that's the thing, sometimes with those things, you need a convincer to realize that something's not right. I had two convincers. My face was in really bad shape and it was really upsettingly painful to play. And then I sat in a small practice room in a studio in New York with Roger Ingram four feet across a small room from me pinging double d's in my face with that extraordinary characteristic sound of his and i was like well yeah that'll work i'll do that that'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) you know and so i was really in a position to want to take what he had to say to me on board and really actively try it and it worked really well for me so you know When I went back to see him, when the road took me back close enough, it was about eight months later, I showed up he said, okay, did you practice everything? You know? And I said, yeah, sure. I've been working on it. It's been going real good. You know, thanks. Okay. Show me. And he said, oh, you're the one who actually did the work. Look at that. You know, because as I know for myself, sometimes people aren't ready to hear it. And so he said, this is what you need to do. You know, if you deal with that, everything will start to work out better for you. And they go, no, nah, it's too different. Don't want to. And they stick with what they were dealing with before. And so, you know, some improvements may get made, but others don't. I was in a position to need to do that. So I really wanted to do that. And so I did it and it worked out great. And I, you know, all of a sudden I don't get hurt playing gigs, you know, or playing the horn. Unless I'm, you know, really have a 10 hour day or something like that. Then you feel it a little but. You know, it doesn't cause me any pain to play. I had a fist of my range, and you know, life is good.
1: Yeah. Well. So, <laughs> it all sounds good to me. So.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know, but like I say, in that situation, you've got to you've got to really appreciate the source of you know what's being told to you. Yeah. That was exactly the right person to to tell
1: me that i knew he knew what he was talking about yeah well um yeah, yeah he you know, knows it just, He can certainly show it i mean yeah <laughs> like, exactly that, yeah. So exactly I, i've i've been in a room you know i've, I've done a, uh, a number of lessons with roger and it's yeah it's it's it can be somewhat intimidating you know mm-hmm. yeah, it's like holy cow how's he doing that well that's, yeah. but that's why i'm there because he can do it and i want to find out what he knows
0: sure And then he goes on to tell you exactly what he's doing. It's just whether you can get the context of it or not. And that's where, you know, you know, we can all many different you know of us can tell different people different things. But sometimes sometimes someone says it in just the right context that the person gets it. And so the way he explained it to me once he put the context straight really made sense. And so I went ahead and did it and it worked. You know, the information's all there. It's the context that gets lacking. And that's something I think is really important to all of us.
1: Yeah. And I think the important thing you said there is that, you know, you have to be ready to receive the information, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that sometimes it's that, that you have a mental block. And I'm not saying you, I'm just saying, you know, the, sure. the, collective, no, rhetorically. Sure. the collective we uh yeah you know, there's a mental block and we just you know uh, whether it's ego or whatever you know there's something that, that's preventing us from actually listening and then sometimes mm-hmm. it's just that there's there's a missing component you know all the all the information is, is being presented but there's a concept that we're just we're just not quite we haven't caught on yet and it's like a jigsaw puzzle and once that one piece is put in then everything else falls into place and it's like the world just opens up to you so Mm -hmm. yeah that's really cool um yeah i mean i'm a big believer in um like the the in terms of like change when we we need to create change we either do through uh change by default or change by design change by default is when the situation dictates that you must change so Mm -hmm. in the case of us players you know when some when when shit goes wrong, that's when you got to change if, if you want to yeah. keep playing. Uh, but then there's the and that's where most of us find ourselves. You know, is, is that we don't change anything until it actually it's usually until it's it's late in the game. And we mm-hmm. could have mitigated a lot of these things if we had yeah. been proactive in our our diagnosis and our our way of approaching playing. But then the people who change by design, those are the people who are actively looking for information. And actually experiment, you know, actively experimenting with what they're doing to try and find a more efficient way of doing things uh, in terms of the efficiency and the consistency. I think those are the two yeah. things. So, I mean, do you find yourself in, in that kind of world now that you've gone through this, uh, you know, drastic change that you had to do? Or, are you kind of uh, very conscious of of trying to find, you know, subtle ways of tweaking what you do to to make sure that you stay on top of your game?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's interesting. I mean, I I keep coming back to the word context, but even before that time, I mean, I, I knew that there was obviously a better way I could play. And I'd done that for years and years. And I was actively following, you know, really checking out different methods and things like that and talking to different people as I went around and, you know, taking lessons with folks or talking to colleagues on the bandstand and all that kind of stuff and really actively trying to do something better and getting tips where I could find them. But until it was put in the, con- in the context of the fact that what I essentially didn't understand what I was supposed to do with was breathing. And how air was supposed to work. So everything I was reading and learning was through the lens. Of my fundamental misunderstanding of what that was, so it works to a certain extent. It made me stronger here or more flexible there or something like that, you know. But then, once I got turned on to what I was supposed to be doing with my air, everything slotted into place, and I was like, "Huh, that's what everyone else was talking about all this time," you know. So, I'm always dealing with things like that, and I'm always checking out different people's methods, and you know different parts of the pedagogy and all that kind of stuff to try and figure out how I can make myself better, how I can better contextualize things for my students, you know, find a different way to coming around, coming around to it. If someone isn't understanding what I'm trying to get them to do, you know? And so I'm constantly messing with that stuff. That's what I do all the time.
1: Yeah so who who are some of the people that have uh have had these kind of profound influences on you i mean obviously roger is one of them but, but who are some of the other uh people or or methodologies that, that have kind of been either the big part of the puzzle or those little keys that that unlocked uh unlocked the the knowledge that that was kind of like you said uh, was out of context
0: well i mean it's a lot of it is working with the uh the various books and things like that, you know, and it was, you know, it would be hearing somebody someplace and then say, well, I always worked on this and then kind of saying to them, okay, what's the basics of how you do that? Which book do I need to get? Cause I'm moving on next week, you know? And so that's how that would often come around. Um, but I mean, some of the other influential people in that regard, I mean, I had, I had great tips of, At one stage when I was still back in college from the great Derek Watkins who came through to do a workshop at school and you know I was actually checking out his signature horn on the on the trade stand you know trying to play some high notes because I still fancied myself as the the high note guy even when I didn't know what I was doing you know back in those days this is again mid 90s or something like that and but I'm sitting there and I'm trying to play a double IC and I get a tap on the shoulder going, put the second and third valve down and don't blow as hard. And it's Derek, you know, listening, you sound all right, but that's why you're not doing it. And I mean, I didn't get so much more information than that from him. I didn't really until many years, later have a chance to talk with him at any length. Um, but that was an important thing because he was one of my heroes growing up he was the he was the man as far as we were all concerned in in the uk you know one of the greats of all time and you know very sadly missed now he's been gone now for a number of years and you know i i still hear that sound when i play you know that's the kind of The pinnacle of my early experiences was hearing what he sounded like, both on records and life. He was an extraordinary influence. But then, I mean, there's other influences over the years. Uh, Brian Lynch is a close friend of mine, and you know, I've learned an enormous amount from Brian in the, uh, I guess it's probably almost thirty years that I've known him now. I, I met Brian when I was working as a stagehand at my small town jazz festival when he came through with Phil Woods in 92. So, you know, I've known Brian for a long time. And I mean, his thing is much more about uh, approaches to playing jazz and different music and things like that. Some chop stuff as well, you know, But he's an absolutely, have you had Brian on the podcast yet? I'm sure that'd be really not... interesting.
1: I have not. I, I, I need to get, a I need to get connected with him somehow. So. Oh, we can,
0: we, we can make that happen. I'm sure that would be, right. that would be really valuable for everybody. All right. um, you know, so he was another extraordinary influence. And then just different people that you work with as you go around, you know, I've, I've had occasion to, you know, work a little with Roger. I've had occasion to, you know, meet and talk with oh, so many people, you know, we probably, we played the show in Los Angeles and I had uh, Rick Baptiste and Dan Fenero on the bandstand with me for two weeks, you know, and they were very kind to me and took me around to do the kind of trumpet sites and things like that and see some sessions and I got to meet a lot of people, in, you know, including Wayne Bergeron and great Warren Looning and Ewan Racy and all kinds of people like that through those connections. Mm-hmm. so i mean it's all those experiences sometimes it's just snippets but it sets you off on a path and re-engages the, the interest so you start looking at things again
1: yeah well and i think that right there is 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 so crucial that sometimes we want you know we want everything laid out in front of us we you know we want to get a a, a 10-hour lesson or we want someone to take us under our wings and, and mentor us for you know 30 years but sometimes the best lessons are just you know, like the one you got from Derek, which is just that one little bit of information
0: mm-hmm.
1: can can just lead you down a path that's going to give you so much uh, so much stuff that you you never expected. But yeah. it's, it it just all starts with that one simple thing, and I think sometimes we uh, you know tend to you know uh, ignore ignore the small stuff,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and but that's the stuff that's the foundation for for all the big changes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. Wow. And so, I mean, it's. But I think the big part of it is as you find yourself in situations as a musician, you've got to be willing to, you know, look for those moments and pay attention when somebody says something. You know, don't get so caught up I in, mean, you know, I'm on the gig, so I'm already good. Thanks. You know, I learn things all the time. I'm fortunate to play with a bunch of great players. I live in New York City, but there's always something to learn and you know something somebody plays sparks a conversation which then creates a new context for something and you come away with something to really think about and start to experiment with in the in the practice room the next day. That happens all the time and I love that stuff, you know. Yeah. And so Yeah. I d I don't even know what the question was at this point, but I think we've kinda <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's all good uh but yeah you know, that actually um that actually is a good segue into kind of talking about what you've been doing with with airflow uh both in terms of of uh, the the youtube stuff that you've you've been doing for i mean how many years have you been doing the the youtube stuff
0: the videos it's gonna be actually right about now it's four years okay started. So okay. it's Back end of January, beginning of February twenty eighteen doing that. Man. And I was I was really regular with it to begin with. The first couple of years I was pretty good. And then um there was some, you know, family stuff that occurred later in twenty nineteen which kinda of took my attention away from it and so I've been a bit more sporadic since then. But um I had a good year and a half where I was pretty regular with it and put out a lot of videos with the Trumpet A to Z series and you know there was eventually 60 something episodes of exercise of the week over that span although the most recent one of those was just before christmas so i mean that still may yet return we'll have to see but um you know that was really just my that was a reaction on my part i mean i started airflow music to publish a a couple of books that have been on my mind for a while and i you know i kind of mostly written them and i tried to get some publishers interested and no one wanted to even answer the phone or respond to an email so in the end what i've been doing actually as a day job for the previous few years uh was working as a web designer so i would worked with computers a lot and that kind of stuff and i said well i know how to do music engraving I can do with websites. I'm used to like copy editing and things like that for those sort of things. Why don't I just write the thing and do it myself? Like I can figure out how to distribute this and, you know, we're already online, get it done. And so that's what I did in 2017. And that's when Combination Drills, my first title came out. And, you know, that, that did pretty good. And some people liked it and people still like it. And they, you know, sells all the time, you know, here and there, not never going to get rich off trumpet books, but it's, you know, it puts some useful information out in the world and it's always available to people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it it seemed like the natural progression then was to start to think about, you know, one of the media that could be involved in. And in particular, my starting the YouTube channel and getting the videos thing going was really a reaction to what I was seeing in the same sort of scene elsewhere on the internet. There was a, you know, a certain subset of folks who should remain nameless, who were, you know, really causing a lot of trouble with things they were posting about how the trumpet worked. And so I thought, well, you know, not only is the information just largely incorrect, at least from my standpoint, but also I think there's a much more pleasant way we can deal with presenting it. So that's what I set out to do. And that was that's what that was about, really, you know, just trying to be a little bit straightforward, present a little common sense, hope that, you know, someone might think that what I had to share had some value and, you know, might be taken vaguely seriously. And it's I and mean, it's gone pretty well. I, can't, I really can't complain. I mean, it's. I've gotten really into making videos. That's now become my day gig, actually. You know, particularly during the pandemic, I predominantly became a video editor doing uh, virtual performance videos. Mm -hmm. So the skills transferred and that found me into something else that I now do as well. But it's just interesting how these, you know, little things you become interested in just lead you down a different path and make you think about something slightly differently.
1: Yeah. Well, and then finding the theme. That exist in all of it, um, you know. Like, like you, I've had a lot of different uh, swirls in my my career path, and uh, mm-hmm. there's there a point in my life where I looked at at people who had similar experiences uh, in in having a lot of different things that they've done over their life, and thinking like, man, well, you know, why don't you figure out what you want to do, you know, and just do some do sure. something. Uh, but then I started now, you know, as I, I've gotten older, I'm able to look back on my life and see it in, in context so that that's going to be the word of the episode I can do that absolutely like the old Groucho Marx thing the secret word you said the secret word yeah. and the word is <laughs> um, but if they will see my life in context I see that everything I've done actually plays into what I'm doing now all of those skills all of those experiences they they've you know they just coalesced into something that's different than what I thought but you know hey yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's taking the lessons that you've learned and applying them. And when you do that, then everything you do is a kind of practice. You know, uh, I may not be practicing my horn all the time, but uh, you know, a lot of the things that I do in, in my day job uh, and in this, my, my afternoon job and my, sure. uh, my job they all work together because they're about, they're about listening. They're about uh, understanding. They're about the you know taking ideas and creating something out of it. So you know everything supports everything else, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's kind of a, a really cool place to be at in life when when that happens.
0: Yeah, and I, mean, you know, I I totally agree once again. And it's interesting, but I I can look at all the thing different things like that that I've done, and the central crux of it has always been about the trumpet. And music has always been at the backbone of it. So my, for six years, I was a web developer, and that's what I did for a living. And I, you know, I was starting to lean back towards playing some again. But I did. After I moved to New York, I completely took a year off the horn, um, uh, partly for immigration reasons. I wasn't allowed to work, so I didn't. And you know, now, as it turns out, it was great preparation for a global pandemic. I was, I already knew I could cope with not playing the horn yeah, Yeah. (laughs) being outside the house and what have you, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but that's what we dealt with. And, you know, but the website job that I had was predominantly building websites for musicians. And I came at that to begin with, because I had my own website and I'd figured out how to do that. And then I remained good at it because I had the musician's work ethic of showing up and actually doing some stuff and caring about what I was dealing with. And also, you know, I understood what musicians needed on their website because I'd had one for so many years. So again, it, it brings that context back to it. And yeah, I mean, it sits at the heart of everything that happens. So, you know, some people will look at me and say, Oh, that's the guy from YouTube who, you know, now nah, in the greater world of YouTube, that's a small niche of people who would say that, but even so, you know, without even being aware that I, you know, I'm fortunate to play with all these great bands and do all this great work in New York and on the road now. But some people know me from that and then wouldn't think ever that I would teach or do anything else. Right. You know. So the trumpet's always in the middle of it. I'm not sure really what I do do either, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well you know i was uh, i was looking at your 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 books and um your it it seems like you have a a uh, an obsession with odd time so uh your your uh, your your text your technical studies uh that, that you did uh, your takes on on clark um what what has driven you to use the odd time uh the odd meter as a uh, what what do you see as being the benefit of that uh and you know why why does that why is that theme appearing in in your work
0: it it started because i was you know the exercises originally the original exercises were written because that was the, the deficiency in my own plaque I ran into a couple of situations where I found myself way out of my depth, even though I figured that I had no reason to be way out of my depth because of a fundamental lack of familiarity with playing in five, you know, and it was as simple as that to begin with. And then I realized that, you know, on on a different occasion, I'd really sucked at playing in seven. So I was like, well, maybe if I did this more, you know, I don't think twice about playing or reading something in four or three or two you know, why is it that we don't, you know, deal with these other things in quite the same way? You know, why don't we have that familiarity? No, it's down to repertoire, and it's down to the music that we tend to listen to, of course. You know, but by the same token, there's no reason it should absolutely throw me for a loop to encounter a 7 8 bar in the middle of a 4 4 chart. But it does, and I bet for most of it, it does at some stage. So that's where that came from. And also, it's the Twisted Technical Studies in particular, they're all variations on Clark 2, but they're all in 7 8. And that was, um, that one was actually born on, a, on an Ellington band tour in Japan in early 2020, um, because I was sitting in the hotel room, jet lagged, trying to practice, like falling asleep to myself playing Clark 2 which I really wanted to do, but I was so zoned out on it because I played it for so many years and it was always the same. And I'd already created all kinds of variations of key centers and tonalities and directions and playing it upside down and backwards and forwards and things like that, you know, that may be more familiar. I was like, what can I do to this to get the exercise that like, get the work in but keep my brain engaged. It'll help me get past the jet lag, and it'll also just help me be a bit smarter about this. I was like, okay, let's figure out a version in seven, and it falls so awkwardly for me mentally to play those things after thirty plus years of playing in the regular way. You know that I still practice those on a comparatively regular basis, and still struggle with certain ones, and so. I think there's something to be said for that. Just you know, changing it up just that little bit, just to make it a little bit more interesting and keep you engaged with it, rather than it becoming a kind of mindless pursuit of, I must play these seven pages of stuff. You know, we can all become a little drone-like in our practice sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and that's it's kind of like the the blessing and the curse of the the way the the brain works. You know, it's like. Mm -hmm. You know habit is is so important to us because you know we, we want to develop those skills, we want them to be mindless, you know, so that they're they're mm-hmm. automatic, so that our body knows what to do better than our brain does. But the problem is then that when when we're practicing that consistently, then we actually start to, if there are any inadequacies in what we're doing, because we're 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 repeating them in that mindless way we're actually reinforcing the bad habits instead of, you know, being completely engaged and, and, exactly. so, yeah, Yeah. that, that, that's good stuff. Yeah, I I know. And it seems like uh, Clark, Clark two tends to be, I mean, it seems like everybody plays Clark two, you know, it it seems that that's like, you know, but I've, I've seen some really interesting takes on the Clark method. Uh, Pat Harbison uh, did a, an entire book on that, uh, like a, a jazz approach to, to the Clark studies and um, uh, Scott Belk uh, has some, some interesting things that he's done with uh, like taking Clark, uh, Clark two patterns over uh, rhythm changes in different keys and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's really, it's, it's taking that, that thing that we all know and hate Uh, and and applying it in a a way that that we don't know and hate.
0: (laughs) Exactly, I mean, as I say to people fairly often, there's there's a reason that the classic methods are the classic methods for the most part. And again, it comes down to context. We may not always realize what it is, but we know that it's good for us if we get into doing it. The Clark technical studies in particular are fascinating to me because it's, for my money, it's the single most perfectly organized book in the entire literature. The way you builds you up through different things to expand what you're able to do just in that book is absolutely fascinating. Going from the smallest intervals to larger intervals to larger intervals still, and then smaller intervals, but over much wider ranges and really getting things moving around in the smoothest possible way. It's really, you know, telling about, you know, his approach to his personal playing and what he was able to accomplish. Cause I mean, now these occasional recordings of Herbert Clark playing things surface and he was extraordinary, you know, and we kind of figured he must've been because, you know, it's the Clark studies. But he really was an extraordinary extraordinary player, and so you know, and maybe you know maybe that was news to me because of the generation I'm a part of, and maybe you know a generation older knew that because there was more people who personally knew him. that's entirely possible, and that's my own kind of slightly younger person's take on that because I'm you know in my late forties as opposed to. Any older, and you know, I most certainly from some of my slightly older students that they, you know, may have studied with Claude Gordon or somebody like that, who was a direct disciple of Herbert Clark. And therefore, you know, there's more of a lineage there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just interesting. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our
1: local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at
0: bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. But, but for me, you know, if you were to have one trumpet book to work on that you can get pretty much everything you need from, only with the most minor of variations, it would be the clock study.
1: Yeah. Well, there's there you go. There's something to be said about it. And then, you know, there, there's 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 a side of the classics or the classics because there, there's a reason. That's the reason that it's stuck around. Um mm-hmm. but again, let's go back to our secret word context, um, you know, taking into context the the skills that were required, certainly the fundamental skills of of you know the control, the flexibility, the the accuracy. Yeah, you know, all of that is is certainly, you know, that hasn't changed at the core, but it's expanded. What's what's expected of us now, especially mm-hmm. if you're going to be a commercial player or a freelance player, um, there are limitations in there, uh both in terms of, of rhythmic concepts. That's why I think that yeah, you know, different- Sure.
0: Well, um, well, exactly. And you know, yeah, the the rhythmic thing and what I like to think of as the, you know, the subdivision chain, if you like breaking things down by something more than twos or threes. Um, You know, pretty much everything in standard pedagogy deals with just working in multiples of two or three. And it's very rare that you run into anything else. You know, it's not, these days, especially rare to run into quintuplets in a piece of music. Or septuplets or something like that, you know. So it's important to know how those sound so that we can execute them correctly. While also dealing with, with the basic fundamentals. And again, we, we tend to. I think we tend to focus too much on things being a, an exercise to work on a specific technique, you know, oh this, this, this is my tuning book. Oh, this is a flexibility book. Well, no, but they can all be everything if you just make slight variations on the exercises and you know like you say change the context we're back to our magic word again it's you know at the heart of everything as far as i'm concerned is actually how smooth we can play something and that's the thing that i focus on when i'm working on things is making sure that my smoothness in transition both from note to note and across an entire phrase is where it needs to be while getting the necessary Accents and what have you out of it, and that goes whether I'm playing in you know the low register or the high register or anywhere in between. You've got to try and play that with as music, and that's what we need to try and get out of it in the end. We come back to context there, you know. Of course, when people come for lessons, what's the thing they ask most about high notes? You know, but they never ask. You know, how do you play a high note? You Know, a bit, I, I need to play a high F in the course of this lyrical solo. It never comes from there, it just comes like high notes. We're back to our context thing. It's you know, that's what's always lacking, and so it gets to be interesting. So, I mean, t- changing things to bring it all around it, into odd meters and things like that is just you know, bringing that familiarity with things into the into the things we work on, so we're a little bit more adaptable and a little more capable when we run into different situations. I think your, you know, your thoughts about, you know, the the requirements of what we might have to do as a freelancer are absolutely spot on. You know, we, there's more stuff we're potentially called upon to play these days than there ever, ever has been.
1: Yeah, and yeah, you know, those demands. Um, I, I think the. Yeah, it requires a tweaking. It Doesn't mean that we throw out Clark and Arbins. You know, Schloss.
0: absolutely not.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, but it's it's taking them out of the context that they were in and putting them into the one that we're in right now.
0: Sure. Although, to be fair, with Clark in particular, if you actually, you know, not you personally, but if one actually reads the instructions. A lot of that stuff is actually there about how he intends for you to expand what's on the page. That's particularly true in the setting up drills, which is another great Clark book, you know, he will actively have you build up to the point of playing these, you know, extended chromatic figures all the way up to high G and beyond, if that's what you need to do. And, you know, if you actually get that far and remember to do that, it's fairly common for us to take clout to and slur it and tongue it. But we're supposed to do that with all of those things in that book. If we really get into it now, I'm as guilty as anybody of not doing it, but you know, at least I know it's there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> True enough. True enough. Um, so with, with your, um, with your approach, we, it, because I actually was just, uh, before we started this, uh, the session, I was, I was checking out your video about, uh, you know, the, the connection, uh, you know, the, your approach to what you personally focus on in your, your practices is kind of your, your mantra. Uh, so that, that smoothness and that connection, um, when you're, when you're working with someone, uh and you you see that that is a major issue i mean how what is one way that you help to put that uh that thought into a a a way that 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 person can grasp and and get a hold of and and start to work with
0: well i mean it, it, it partly depends on how well you know the person you're dealing with and what they're you know some people will react to dealing with things in a certain way and some people want to be more conceptual and some people you know for some people, you just say, you've got to really play it slowly and figure out what that is. And, you know, those kind of crunches in the way we may play through something are indicative of the fact that it's just never happened. But, you know, some people need to approach it from a more conceptual standpoint and, you know, Oftentimes it's about getting your breathing and your support correct. And that fixes a lot of the stuff. And then when you come back to it, you have a new context on practicing. it. It's interesting. Uh, I know you talked to Peter Bond recently and someone I know a little bit from New York, Um, I actually met him when he was first putting his book together. He called me on the phone one day because um, he was, in the singing trumpet, in the, in the middle of the book there somewhere, there is a small gallery of people's ambushes. And I'm among the people in the book. Because basically he was in Josh Landris's shop in New York and was like, OK, I need local pros to get their ambush- pictures that are ambushes. Like, who am I not thinking of? And Josh or one of the guys said, have you, have you checked Brian? And he was like, I don't even know who that is. Looked me up, got my phone number off of Josh, I guess, and you know, called me up and said, Would you be interested in coming doing this? And so we got to talking, of course, as we're sitting in the little practice room, and he's taking a couple of snaps of my chops as I'm playing. And we realized that, you know, we have almost exactly the same concept in terms of what we're dealing with with our approach to pedagogy. You know, and it's funny because the Pete's singing trumpet methodology seems so alien to so many people. But that that's where I came from because when I was a kid, before I even started uh, playing the trumpet, I was a, a singer, and I took voice lessons for several years as a kid. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was with a you know, a fairly serious retired opera singer. So I got some, you know, I got some good stuff there that I never really, again, contextualized until much later, but it did inform my, you know, a certain amount and I got kind of steered away from it in certain ways because it isn't the common approach, particularly to breathing and things like that, as we, you know, as we tend to be taught it, but it's absolutely what I do now. And I think it's spot on because that, That whole thing of supporting like we're singing as opposed to blowing and letting everything collapse is absolutely what we need to do now. Oftentimes, to come back to what you were talking about, you know, if we're trying to get that smoothness happening, it's due to a lack of support. And so placing some version of that, getting the student to do that and find that space where they can take a good breath, have a lot of air, realize they don't need to use it to make a lot of sound. If they can take that into the trumpet, it's going to be enormously helpful for them. And it will fix a lot of those things straight away, just with a little, you know, slight revisiting of the exercises to make sure that now you realize, okay, because I'm doing that, I don't need to make this huge movement with my lips here or something like that because it's now being taken care of. That's an exaggeration to try and fix a problem that doesn't need to exist. You see where I'm going? And so. It, again, it really depends on the context of the student, their approach to learning things, and where they're coming from. If that stuff is already in good place and they're, you know, they're not going through something as smoothly as I'd like them to, then I'll probably just get them to play it slowly because that will probably help them figure that out. But it may be indicative of a larger problem, or you know, problems a bad word for it because it's not necessarily a problem, but. I think you see what i'm saying
1: yeah. you know it's yeah well it, it's interesting because uh, you know we as trumpet players definitely fall into that desire and and a lot of it has been uh it, it's become a necessity as the way music has changed uh the higher faster louder mm-hmm. uh, you know uh yeah if you are going to be a freelance player and you're doing commercial music uh you, you are going to have to be able to play higher faster and not necessarily louder but at least loud enough to be you know sure but but uh sometimes it's it's so uh counterintuitive that the way to play uh that that faster and higher um uh, is through playing slower and softer you know that that just very very relaxed and connected and lyrical approach to playing um you know that 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 seems it seems to not make sense to do the opposite but it's absolutely it's absolutely the thing that seems to make the connection uh with a lot of people to to give them those abilities
0: Mm -hmm. well i mean it's that's absolutely it and it's you know it's a measure of efficiency because the more we try to take something to an extreme, the more prone we're going to be to exaggerating some kind of part of the process in order to just get it done. And the more we repeat that, the more we're going to keep that exaggeration in what we do. So we're wasting energy and we're not getting it done in the most efficient way. It's, I mean, the the kind of obvious, Elsewhere in the world, parallel to that, is martial arts training, which I know is something you've been involved in at some time. And I mean, if you look at things like Tai Chi, those are seemingly very gentle movements, but they're incredibly precise movements. And that's what people are, you know, dealing with. And so I imagine, even though that's not something I've really dealt with a huge amount personally. But I imagine that there's got to be a certain amount of that in a kind of more fast moving martial art, where sometimes you're going to take those movements and do them real slow. So you measure out exactly where everything's got to go. Am I, I, is that reasonable or am I wider the mark there?
1: Nope. 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 Yeah. So actually after, you know, teaching Tai Chi for, you know, 30 years, uh, that that's one of the things I always found is that people misconstrued the idea it's like you know why are you moving slowly well you're moving slowly so that you can be in each moment that you can pay attention to every detail and you can get it to the point where then you can move fast because and then I would always often make my students you know do things fast and they freak out like just don't think about it being don't think about going faster just take the space out between each movement you know Mm -hmm. don't you know, just just let it let it go, and yeah. uh, it's it's amazing how much faster you can move because you've taken the inefficiencies out of your movement. So yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, that's that that's uh, that's my mantra. That's my jam right there. So yeah,
0: so I mean, again, we're very much on the same page with that. It's it's finding what those things are that make it harder than it needs to be, and gradually removing those. The, you know, the the easiest path to anything is the easiest path. We don't need to, you know, if we can walk straight through the door, why would we need to clamber over the top of it? It's <laughs> But we'll find a way to do that from time to time. You know? Or we could open the gate rather than climb it over the wall is maybe a better way of saying it. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it's like you're saying, you know, that that when there's when there's an inadequacy or a gap or deficiency or however you want to say it within the system, um, something has to compensate. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I know Peter was talking about this and you've talked about this and it has been my own experience, um, that you can, you can get things done, uh, by not necessarily using the most efficient way. Uh, Mm -hmm. you can muscle your way through, you can distort things, you can do all kinds of stuff to to get the result, but you end up paying for it somewhere down the road. Um, Yeah, but when, but when you find the most efficient way, then you have, uh, it, there's, and I think this is where people sometimes get messed up because, uh, it it becomes almost a matter of semantics, but it's the way you think about or describe things. Because a lot of times when people think about, um, efficient playing, they're thinking, you know, they, they think about it as being, um, like no effort, like no pressure playing that, those sort of concepts. It's like, well, there's always effort meaning there's always energy that's expended. There's always pressure because if there's no pressure, if there's no friction, you're not getting, you know, anything happening. Uh, But it's just having the right things in the right place. When everything Mm -hmm. in the system is working properly, then nothing has to compensate. Nothing has to overwork. And I think that's where we start to get into problems because we'll, you know, we'll, we'll use the, you know, the, the high note, ring on the the horn to uh you know to compensate for you know the support of the proper support of our our air uh will contort things we'll we'll rely on the equipment trying to compensate for inadequacies or, or weaknesses in our structures so um yeah I, I think that 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 concept of lyrical playing and connected playing and focusing on that that's going to highlight where any of those deficiencies lie and then it gives you Hopefully, an opportunity to uh, to address it and figure out the most efficient way to, to work with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, those efficiencies come in different forms as well. I mean, it it's about it can be about playing high, it can be about playing fast. It's also about approaching the low register in the right way and really getting down there in a way that really opens up and lets you play those notes without them getting tight. You know, and It's all different kinds of things like that, but yeah, I'm not sure what more there is to say about that particularly. It's,
1: yeah. So as, as, a as someone who, who's, you know, you, you're doing online lessons and and things like, like Mm -hmm. everybody's had to be forced to do that, it seems like in the past couple of years. (laughs) Um,
0: yeah, but but it's funny because when, when that became a thing early in the pandemic, I mean, uh, I teach at the new school in New York, uh, as an adjunct occasionally. Oh, semester's just started. I don't know if I have anyone this semester, but anyway, um, you know, all these things came out, you know, we're going to have to transition to these lessons being online. So if you need technical support and I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm good. I've been doing this since 2008. I've been doing this way since before it was hit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it amazed
1: yeah. how many, even like doing this podcast, uh, how many people uh you know professional players uh that, that don't have they, they don't have a setup that's conducive to to doing any kind of of online stuff it's like mm-hmm. man that, yeah, it, times are changing my friend
0: <laughs> times are changing. yeah absolutely i mean i i've been into a little home recording i've gotten really good at it the last couple of years i've been you know getting somewhat good at it a couple of years before that. Because I saw that something like that was going to come and, you know, you've got to be available in the way that you can be available for people. Yeah, again, that's the freelancer's mantra right there. But it's um, yeah, I mean, the the online teaching thing in particular, it's become now not only a necessity, but now acceptable because of it. The same complaints that have always been there about it remain, but it's a downside. Easier than catching the infectious disease or having to travel halfway across the planet. So, you know, <laughs> you know, we, we're that. sitting here. It's you know, we're sitting here this afternoon chatting. You're, you know, three hours away from me or whatever, a couple of states over. Uh, I was teaching a lesson to a chap in Sweden this morning. You know, I'm able to do that because of these things. It's they. I'm not finding a downside in that. Sure. If we were sitting in the room together, some things might be easier, Mm -hmm. but either us sitting here having a conversation or me sitting with that, that person in Sweden talking about the trumpet and dealing with the peculiarities of that, but, you know, we still have the opportunity to actively in real time communicate, which is much better than me needing to record something, have them record something critique it record something else as a response that gets long-winded quickly yeah so that's the downside to the youtube thing that takes some production time to put together i mean likewise as you know dealing with a podcast it's it's all very well to sit here for an hour or two and have a chat but then there's a certain amount of post-production that goes into that which is a time-consuming endeavor
1: yeah yeah and people people don't don't get it (laughs) yeah yeah, I've I've yeah. Uh, I've mentored a couple people uh, here at the facility that I work out of that want to start podcasts, and and uh, I don't know, maybe I scared some of them off when I said, okay, <laughs> well, you know, these are the things you need to think about, because this is, you know, this is the reality of it, you know, sure. and it's just like with the, being a trumpet player, you know, it's like uh, mm-hmm. everybody wants to get the big gigs, you know, it's like, yeah, you'd love to be, you know, on tour, you'd love to be on the big stage, you'd love to be in the studio, right but let's let's really look at 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 what those people whether it be like you know you or or you know uh you know uh you're talking about like dan for or or Mm -hmm. you know uh some of the other guys you know some new york guys like frank green or uh you know people like that peter bond uh you know what what did they have to do what did you have to do to get to that point where you're able to have that kind of life you know it's it's not you're not going to get there if uh your priority is is uh, playing video games and, and watching TikTok. You know you you you've got to sure. you got to shed. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that, that those are those are the things that, that uh, we you know, we go back to our, our earlier conversation about you know the influences and the context of things that sometimes we uh, we take we take things for granted uh, and and not look deeper into what what lies under the surface of mm-hmm. success, whether it be success in the career or just success, being able to, to play a passage you have not been able to play before. Sure. Um,
0: and then I mean, of course, you know, you said that, but then of course, you've got perceived levels of success. You know, there's a certain metric, you could say I'm successful. this. there's certain metrics by which I go, I, I don't do anything. You know, there's some people out there really working doing some nice things. Yeah. But it's you know, you've got to find your place in your life and and how that works for you and how you're able to deal with it. I've, you know, I have a couple of students, slightly younger cats who are on the kind of extended pop tours and things like that. And they, you know, they're really struggling with the travel aspect. So the questions I get from them are how do you cope with the fact that you've got to get up at four o'clock in the morning and show up at the airport at six and be on an airplane at seven, fly for 12 hours. Be in a totally different time zone, be upside down, you know, and then expected to show up and play, you know. Well, you do because that's actually what the gig is. That's just what you got to do. You got to figure out that you know that if you've got a four AM lobby call, it's maybe not the best idea to go and get horrendously drunk until three o'clock in the morning, you know, as an example. And again, many of us have been there mentioning no Brian's, and um <laughs> 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 but you know it's hopefully you learn from that experience and figure out that what what that is and you figure out the you know the quickest way to get your shots from cold to ready to go in case you don't have time to sit and do that protracted two hour warm-up that you've been promising yourself or whatever you know yeah if it if it takes more than about three minutes then you're probably in trouble you know on a basic level sure we can all do a little bit better by warming up a little bit longer but you know you're going to be able to run and gun sometimes
1: yeah well you know i i've had that conversation with a few people i think that i had i had a really good conversation with with kiku collins about about that about some of the things Mm that that people you know if you want to be a commercial player particularly in the world of like touring acts big big name stage acts uh here's some of the things that you should think about like you know how to learn choreography how to how to uh, you know yeah. you know le- learn how to you know try out your shoes before you hit a gig you know you, and, mm-hmm. you know all, all those little things that you know, you don't learn in school yeah you know? sure. and and it's uh, like you said man yeah you know, how how do you manage doing those those 4am lobby calls well you know you, that's the stuff you learn from experience. That's those those are the 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 road lessons that you learn, and I think that that those are some of the most valuable ones, uh, especially for the, the musicians who have had a uh, you know a sustainable career doing that, you know, mm-hmm. been able to do it with some level of longevity. Uh, the only reason you're able to do it that long is because you you've you've developed those kind of skills, and there's a lot that goes a lot of that work ethic can translate into so many different areas. Like, you know, we were talking about earlier, you know, it all comes together.
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh, man.
1: man, cool. Well, I think we talk about all this stuff for ages, but we do have to get through our obligatory uh, standard segments. The first uh-huh. one is brought to us by uh, our mutual friend. Um, and I, I, I say that in all honesty. Uh, our mutual friend, Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones, uh, and this is uh, Sound Off, and Sound Off, we want to talk about uh, your approach to creating sound, uh, you know, that beautiful trumpet sound, uh, how, do you, how do you think about it, how do you approach it, and, and how do you coach or mentor people through a process of, of developing the right sound for the job?
0: yeah for me it comes well it's one of those things that's dangerous to say as a kind of blanket statement but it comes down to air but it comes down to an understanding of what actually needs to happen with that it's not about a quantity of air and anything like that it's not a more air scenario or anything like that but you've got to make sure that you breathe and you've got to make sure that the tank is reasonably full so there's fuel for the Endeavor, you know, the energy that you're gonna transfer has got to come from someplace. And so that's the first thing you need. But then, as you know, I said a little bit before, it's I very much take a singing approach to it. You know, if I support in the same way that I would when I'm singing and I make sure to engage properly in my core, so you know, it's that you know deep breaths chest up that's in so much of the pedagogy famously in claude gordon and things like that but you know in all of them in some version you get that stuff happening right and get to the grips with the fact that you really don't need to blow to make a sound on the trumpet then generally you're going to be better off now once you get to the basic grips of that then what you've got to do is you've got to play things like your long tones and that kind of thing to really experience what it is to sit in a slot and find where you are and make that sound the most beautiful way it can sound in whatever you know scenario you're you're playing and you know through doing that you can learn to brighten or darken the sound and change it and what have you and be where you need to be with it but it comes from those fundamental things of good breath support an easy approach i subscribe to much more of a singing or even sighing approach to how the air moves than a than a blowing approach, as it were. And, you know, a lot of it will be really depends on the sound that we want to make and the register you want to deal with. I mean, definitely, if you're playing in the high register and you're trying to play lead trumpet all the time, you're going to maybe deal with a more high compression thing, you know, both in terms of abdominal compression and both in terms of intraoral compression to really get that speaking and out there, but it's still not going to be a lot of air. And that's the thing that people get kind of mixed up on. And it comes back to what we were saying about efficiency. You're putting too much air through the thing, you're making your lips work too hard. If your lips are working too hard, they're over muscled, over tense, they're not going to vibrate as well. So the sound's not going to be as nice. And you'll be in danger of buzzing through the horn rather than really resonating the horn so but again in terms of uh, one simple thing to do nice deep breath and imagine that you're singing because that will tend to keep your chest up tend to employ some resonance rather than force and probably be the best basic standpoint to begin from for most people
1: all right solid sound.
0: But while we're while we're talking about that, and since we mentioned it, Michael Barclay, Barclay Microphones. If you haven't checked out Barclay microphones, and I know you have, Jose, but for anyone out there listening, you've got one on right there. Mine's on the on the stand in the corner here, waiting to go for the next session tomorrow. And you've got to check these things out because what Mike has done here is just an extraordinary piece of kit. And, you know, I've never had a microphone that has been able to create such a rich and honest sound with minimal stuff done to it. And then you look at it and you find out how much it costs and you're like, hang on, that's, that's a third of the price of anything comparable. What's that about? So, you know, shameless, shameless plug for Mr. Michael Barclay and the Barclay microphones, please, yeah. because we should all be checking them out if we have the opportunity, because they're really, really top draw.
1: Yeah. Not, not so sh- shameless plug, uh, for me, but yeah, the, it, and this is, this ties into the whole concept, you know, th- that, uh, we were talking about earlier, kind of like the people that are doing it, you know, and, and Mike has, he, there was an inadequacy. There was a, there was a gap that he found in his mm-hmm. technology. It's like, well, I need a better microphone. I can't afford to go out and buy, you know, this vintage Royer. So mm-hmm. I'll make one of my own, and and uh, you know he was to do that. And it's if you're a trumpet player, I mean, this is a mic made by a trumpet player, Uh, so the the specs definitely favor us. So you know you owe yourself to uh, to check them out. So, Mike, you you can send me the check in the mail later. Uh, Yeah. Me too. Thank you. (laughs) A bottle, a bottle will be fine too. Uh, so our, our next segment is uh, brought to us by uh, one of our other sponsors. It's uh, Geared Up and it's brought to us by Venture Mio- Mouthpieces. Uh, Venture Mouthpieces where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code uh, Trumpet Gurus 21 to get tw- get 10%. I always mess it up. 21 to get 10% off your orders. Uh, so uh, Geared Up is about gear. Obviously, you know, we trumpet players love to talk about gear, but, you know, and true trumpet guru's fashion i don't want to really dive into what you play as to why you play what you play now what what's your your mindset in terms of gear and the role gear plays in uh making your sound uh as lyrical and smooth and connected as possible
0: yeah it comes down very much to balance for me i want to you know the horn that i play i've played for 10 years it happens to be a shaggle james morrison uh the the meister Trompeta series the, like the actual artist model rather than the jam one or jm2 i went to shaggle just on a whim basically one day because i was playing in the next city and one of the guys in the shop that i knew came by and said would you like to come by and check out some horns so i went there with absolutely no intention of ever playing one of their horns. But I went and I picked it up and I tried it. And they were really trying to strongly sell me on a different model as well. Actually, as it happened, they had, you know, something new that was out. And they were, check this out. We think this is the latest and greatest. And James's horn was a year or two older by that stage. And I picked that thing up and I was like, no, 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 You don't understand. This is coming home with me. And, you know, we'll we'll figure out how that works and what the peculiarities of that are. But this is what's happening today. So (laughs) it's... But the reason for that was that you know it played in such a way that i found an instant improvement in the the color palette i was able to get out of the sound i was able to do what i was already doing as easily or slightly easier but also i found i could get more richness out of the sound and that was attractive to me and you know even on simple a b recordings with a cell phone you know across the room i was like yeah no this sounds better i feel like it sounds better from behind it and even on a crappy cell phone recording it seems to sound better in front of it and so yeah if you think it's right it's probably right and yeah so i mean that that's why i went there in terms of mouthpieces you know again i want to find something that fits for me I tend to play smaller mouthpieces than average, I would say. Um, Because that's the rim size that fits for me. And while I don't like to have any kind of hard and fast rules about that, the only thing I'm really looking for when someone has a mouthpiece is that it will anchor outside of the red of the lips, outside of the vermilion there so there's actually some muscles involved in the embouchure if it's inside of that you know that softer bit of the lip in there then you're not getting the benefit of those muscles they're not able to actually do anything but other than that if it's big or small it doesn't really matter providing you're able to get inside there and it's comfortable to you that's really what i'm looking for in terms of that but then you've got to make sure you've got something that makes the sound that you want or need to make. That's what it comes down to, basically. And that's what I'm looking for. And, you know, the big question is, you know, I I need to be able to play better high notes. What do I need to do with my mouthpiece? Uh, Probably practice on the one you have got, you know, to a certain extent, unless you really, you know, Maybe if you've already got a strong double high C and you, but you're really scuppered trying to get to your D, then maybe there's something in the mouthpiece that might help out. But only when we're at the extremes of something like that might that become a factor. Generally, you can fix everything up by, you know, practicing something in the right way. I happen to play, you know, four different mouthpieces depending on what I'm playing. My middle of the road is a small lead trumpet mouthpiece for most people. I've got a smaller one. I've got a couple of slightly bigger ones, but they're still narrow rims because that's what fits well for me. And in the injury I was talking about earlier on in 06 when I busted my lip open, I can't play a wide diameter there because there's too much scar tissue up in here that nothing vibrates. So I have to play a small diameter to get off of that. So in a perfect world, I you know I might play something a little bit bigger, but it doesn't work for me. So I have to deal with what I'm you know these are the cards I'm dealt at this stage. That was a self-inflicted injury ultimately. So I've got to I've got to cope with that. Um, but yeah, you've got to. I mean, I generally tend to think you're going to play the smallest thing that helps you make the you can get away with to make the sound that you need to make. Yeah. So yeah. again, you're not wasting energy and dealing. You know, putting more out than you need to
1: that makes absolute sense go through that gate not over the wall
0: yeah exactly
1: okay well our final segment is uh, brought to us by robinson's remedies robinson's remedies rapid release for your sore and tired chops uh this is robinson's remedy rapid fire rounds a series of questions that uh, kind of bounce all over the place uh kind of like your chops when you're doing some uh double pedal tones It's kind of flopping all over the place Uh, Mm um And uh, so we're gonna gonna fly through these. I just need your quickest responses, Brian. Okay. Are
0: you let's do it.
1: All right, here we go. First question. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? My wife. All right. What's your favorite book?
0: The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
1: Ah uh, yes, 42 is
0: the great. Yes, story. baby
1: um what's the worst movie you've seen maybe hitchhikers back to the galaxy
0: that was a pretty dreadful movie considering the book but um me you think you know it's not a specific movie but there's an entire genre of movie which are uniform I mean, there, there's hundreds of them but they're all exactly the same it's hallmark channel christmas movies
1: oh yeah
0: Ooh. they're all exactly the same you know Someone from the city goes back to a small town they once lived in and helps out their uncle who's got, for some reason, a shop that makes, I don't know, ornamental cheese in the shape of a frog. And it's failing for some unknown reason. And then through the magic of Christmas, they figure it all out and everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. There's hundreds of them and they oh, they make me crazy.
1: <laughs> I'm working on that for sure. Um, all right. Uh, if uh, you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be?
0: right now I'd be doing what I do in the meantime, which is editing videos most of the time, probably.
1: Yeah, it's fun stuff.
0: It it would always be something with IT because that's what I've always done on the side.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what's your favorite drink?
0: Fun drink or. Um, I mean, my, my go to, uh, celebratory beverage would be, a. Uh, Will be a German and something from Munich, preferably an an Augustina if I could get it. Mm.
1: Okay. Those are tasty. Uh you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people. Who would you want to have there?
0: Mmm. Oh, so many strong choices though, isn't there? Yeah. I think definitely high on the list would have to be Stephen Fry. I don't know if you know who that is. Oh, I know Stephen Fry, yes. English comedian and author and writer and actor and presenter and what have you. But I there's a chap I could listen to read the phone book. So, you know, that would certainly be a thing to actually, you know, such an erudite conversationalist as well. I think that would be really fascinating. Um, Let me see. Who else will we get? Hmm, three people. You know, it's 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 fun to consider putting people together as a set. I mean, it might be might be interesting to put him and Hugh Laurie back together because that's got to just be entertaining.
1: Oh my gosh! Yeah.
0: Um. So that might be a thing. You know
1: ruin Atkinson in there and then and you've got the trifecta.
0: Well, that's true, but then you're never gonna get a word in edgewise. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> not that you'd necessarily want to, but it's uh, yeah. Um somebody for them to actually debate something sensible with. Um actually yeah, i I'd, I'd go with uh former President Obama. I think that'd be really interesting.
1: Yeah okay cool uh and uh you have three additional chairs at the table uh you can have any three people from history so any three people no longer with us
0: ah now we get into the good stuff now you see i'd I, i'd be stuck i'd be i think i really want to add douglas adams who wrote the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy to that mix because Partly I'd be putting him back together with all his old friends and partly, you know, I think he'd be a fascinating person to talk to. Um, but then outside of that, I would be tempted to take it in the realm of trumpet, you see, and have a chance to actually check out some of the the thoughts of people. I would probably go Herbert L. Clark and Carmen Caruso.
1: Hmm. Okay. Wow, that sounds like a very interesting dinner.
0: It's going to be two interesting dinners all at once, really, if we're honest, but uh, either way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, next question. Lacquer, plated, or raw?
0: Whatever sounds good when I play it.
1: Okay. What's your favorite quote?
0: Hmm. Oh, well, let's let's stick with the Douglas Adams thing. Time is an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so. (laughs) (laughs) Or the other one is, uh, what's so bad about being drunk? It's all about context. Ask the glass of water.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is your greatest fear?
0: probably being unable to play, like having an injury of some sort that removed that.
1: Uh, You could be granted one superpower. What would it be?
0: Does teleportation count as a superpower?
1: It certainly does.
0: Yeah, let's do that so I can stop spending quite so much time on airplanes.
1: Uh, There you go, yeah. (laughs) You can you can book as many gigs as possible,
0: exactly, um, and just show up instantaneously. That'd be nice, wouldn't
1: it? You actually bounce back and forth between gigs, like between songs.
0: Yeah. yeah, you could you could fit them in on the break, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I that would work with your chops, but yeah. <laughs> all right. What aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated?
0: Oh, it's it's high notes, without a doubt.
1: And uh, what do you think is the most underrated aspect?
0: Um, Yeah, I get stuck between the two things that I find lacking in myself and on gigs and things is time very often but also kind of musical context for playing things i'd, I'd be i'd be torn between the two of those
1: yeah right, well, we'll give you a bonus bonus answer on that one so two things all right um you're able to go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about life or no excuse me about music about music what would that be
0: Oh, I'd I'd show up and teach myself how to breathe and save myself 20 plus years of anguish.
1: Okay. And uh, you're going to give yourself one piece of advice about life.
0: I think we get into the realm of self-awareness. You're gonna hear a lot of outside voices that seek to tell you that you're doing something wrong. And it's not that that's valid, but consider the source.
1: Very good. And the final question for you, Brian Davis, what do you want your legacy to be?
0: Oh, that's something I hope not to have to think about for a very long time. I think I probably want to be remembered fondly. I think that'd be, that'd be the thing really, you know, as long as people thought I was a nice, good person, whatever, you know, that, that I'd settle for that. That's all well and good. All right. Much better than the alternative.
1: Yeah. And they'd invite you to a, to a dinner with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie.
0: Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> well they go, no, certainly not doing that. No not that dumbass. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well my friend, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. It was great getting to know you. And um yeah, I just I, I really have enjoyed this.
0: Oh well thank you so much. It's been a thorough pleasure to be with you and to chat with you too. And I hope we get to meet up in the city or outside when when I I get out of to Pennsylvania occasionally. Next time I'm coming over your way, I'll be sure to give you a shout.
1: Oh absolutely absolutely uh we'll, uh we'll we'll grab a cup of something and mm-hmm. uh, and we'll have we'll have a good time and yeah. uh yeah and make sure uh folks that you check out uh Brian's YouTube channel and uh, of course the the accompanying webpage as well the links will be in the show notes um and pick up those uh those publications There's some good exercises to uh, to challenge your fingers your face and your brain so, uh, that's, that's what it's all about. So thanks for joining us for this episode of the Trumpet Guru's Hang. Make sure that you like, subscribe, share all those wonderful things. And, uh, you know, we, we love doing this. And if you have a suggestion for a future guest, uh, besides Brian Lynch, uh, since Brian's already got that covered for me, uh, but if it's just for a uh, guest you'd like to see, hit me up. If you have any questions, comments, please. Uh, I try to read and I try to respond to everything. So, uh. I really appreciate you, and uh, this is as much for you as it is for me. So thank you all very much, and as always, peace and slide, grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see The Hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signor, and our closing theme music comes courtesy of the greatest funeral ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of the Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.